sermon text this morning is John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 to provide a little bit of context. So our scripture reading is John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Let's all give careful attention to the public reading of God's word. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech. But the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate of the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved, and they will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is true, and who's called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would sweeten this word in our hearts and in our minds that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior, who together reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, this morning we're continuing our series on the I Am Uh, statements in the Gospel of John. We've already considered the fact that Jesus said, I am the bread and I am the light. We come to our third I am this morning, I am the gate. Now, what we're looking at in verses 7 to 10 is actually somewhat of an explanation of verses 1 to 9, which is why I read 1 to 9. Several times in that introductory story that Jesus told the Pharisees, he mentions the gate. And in verses 7 to 10, he's going to explain more about what this gate signifies. But in those opening verses, he also mentioned the shepherd. And in the following verses, he talks more about what it means to be the good shepherd. But that's our next sermon where Jesus says, I am the shepherd. So we really have a little mini 
two-part series that it's explaining, uh, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 9, I am the gate. And you will notice from our reading of verses 7 through 10, two times Jesus says, I am the gate. And so since Jesus says, I am the gate two times, I guess it might be a good idea just to have a sermon with two points. So we're going to follow that pattern. And the first thing that Jesus, in effect, says is, I am the gate of the sheep. Now, I'm using the word gate. Your translation, uh, if it's a King James or an ESV or an NASB, might say, I am the door. Uh, Door is the traditional translation. And the word in Greek certainly does mean door. But the imagery is all that of a sheep pen. And sheep pens don't really have doors. Sheep pens have gates. And so the reference here is clearly to the gate uh, of a sheep pen. And so I'm just using the word gate as it makes most sense in context. Now, Jesus says, I am the gate of the sheep. And uh, I love the word of because of is such a small word that we never think about Uh, We just think, well, of means of, but of means so many different things. Uh, This is a, what is it? Small table. It's a small table of wood. By the way, maybe I shouldn't say this, but have any of you ever noticed that these two tables don't match? They have, a, they have a different structural design. Maybe only the son of a cabinet maker would notice that. And um, also, uh, this could e- that can't be fixed. This could easily be fixed. That one has the grain running this way. This one has... Do you mind if I change it? <laughs> Trust me, my sermon will be much better if the grain is running the same way. Uh, it's got to be running the same way on both of those. I may have told you when I pastored way back in the day, they would clean the church on on Saturday night, and I would always go in on Sunday morning, and I would adjust the pulpit because they would move it, and it was never really lined up perfectly with the center aisle, and I just don't know how you can preach well if that's not the case. Uh, that my, my wife speaks, what does she call them? Um, it's like a professional hazard. You know, it's like the psychologist is always analyzing you. Well, as the son of a cabinet maker, I just, asymmetry just makes me nervous. So at any rate, where was I? Oh, yes, that little word of. Um, You know, this is a table of wood. What's of mean? Made out of. Um, This is a, this is a hymnal of Christ the King. What's of mean? Owned by. We might have a book here, and it's a book of John Calvin. That might mean by John Calvin or about John Calvin. Of means all sorts of things. So whenever it says, I am the gate of the sheep, what does that little of mean? Well, two things here. Of means for the benefit of. I am the gate for the benefit of the sheep. See, it's not like the gate of the city or the gate of the yard. Those are different ofs. This is uh, of that means for the advantage of. Jesus says, I am the gate for your benefit. 
Now, the gate is the gate of a pen. My translation used that word in the opening verses. Uh, we don't want to think like of, a, of, a, um, of maybe a pen that is right near the house. This is when the sheep are out in the field. This is a makeshift pen for when the sheep are out to pasture. And uh, so this makeshift pen has a gate. Some interpreters think that the gate is actually the shepherd. Because there is an ancient tradition of the shepherd lying down in the gate at night so that no bad guys can come in and do any harm. Um, That's probably not the case because in this picture that Jesus is painting for us, the sheep are going in, the sheep are going out. The gate is really an access point. As we're going to see, it's, it's a way for the sheep to go in. It's a way for the sheep to go out. One of our sermons, Jesus is going to say, I am the way. And he's actually going to be amplifying this idea. So the, the point is that, that the gate gives the sheep access, as we'll see, to what's inside the pen, to what's outside the pen. But the bottom line is, the gate is for the benefit of the sheep. And this is confirmed, I think, by what Jesus goes on to say, because he draws a contrast between the shepherd and all the others. In contrast, see, he's the gate in contrast to the thieves. He's for the benefit of the sheep. They aren't. He refers to all who have come before me. All who have come before me are thieves. Malachi? Jeremiah? Isaiah, Moses, thieves? I don't think so. All doesn't always mean all. Uh, When Jesus says, all who come before me, he's not referring to the true prophets. He's not referring to the true Levitical teachers. He's not referring to John the Baptist. He's referring to those false prophets, those false teachers that were known throughout the history of Israel and that were in ancient Judea in Jesus' own day. Perhaps he even has in mind the Pharisees, to whom he is speaking when he says, All who have come before me. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. See, language, not only gate, but the language of the thieves and the robbers, he's picking up from that previous story he told the Pharisees that they didn't get. So he's going to go over it again with other words and with other pictures. He's going to say it again in a different way so that hopefully they'll get the picture. See, thieves and robbers, if anything, are not for the benefit of those from whom they are stealing. They're not there for the benefit of those who, whom they are robbing. Uh, they're there for their own benefit. And of course, in our modern day, it's not really hard to believe, is it, that there might be ministers who are not there really for the benefit of the sheep, but for their own benefit? Well, there's nothing new under the sun. Jesus says, there have been a ton of people who have come before me. Um, they're, they're false prophets, they're false teachers, and one of the ways we know that they're false prophets and false teachers is not so much by what they say as by the motivations that they have. They're really not there for the benefit of the sheep. They're there for their own benefit. Uh, he says, but the sheep have not listened to them. 
Again, in our previous few verses, Jesus said, they'll never follow a stranger, the true sheep. Uh, the true sheep will always follow the true shepherd. The bottom line is, Jesus says to you this morning, I am the gate. And when you think of the gate, you have to think not architecturally. You have to think very personally. When Jesus says to you, I am the gate, he says, I have come for your benefit. You've heard me preach a sermon, perhaps, if you were here that Sunday, and certainly I've mentioned it in many other sermons, uh, the idea that floats around in the church today that it's not about you. It's about God. And you know that I think that that's imbalanced. Uh, We have sung about it this morning. uh, To God be the glory. It's ultimately about God. It's ultimately about God's glory. But it is about you. Jesus doesn't say, I am the gate and then say something about the, the, what that really means is that I have come for the glory of God. He did come for the glory of God. And that is our ultimate, uh, our ultimate goal in life is that God might gain glory through our lives. That does not, however, negate the fact that Jesus says to you, I am the gate. I have come for your benefit. And of course, when, when Jesus benefits you as the gate, that does bring God glory, doesn't it? So what God has joined together, let man not separate. Our good, the glory of God. So just be encouraged this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we sing, as we pray, as we listen to the word read and explained, that Jesus is the gate. And that means that he has come to benefit you. Now, he says, I am the gate a second time. And what he really does is go on to kind of amplify what it means that he is the gate of the sheep. He's the gate for your benefit. The second thing he says is, I am the gate of salvation. Now let's unpack this in three ways. I am the gate of salvation because we might come too quickly to think we know what Jesus means. We might think, I'm the gate that provides forgiveness of sins. Let's go on. But there's much more to it than that. I am the gate of salvation. Three things. That means I am the gate of safety. And here Jesus is talking about giving you access. See, I am the gate. He's talking about giving you access to the benefits that are inside the pen. The benefits that are inside the pen. Now, when we think of that word salvation, which my translation uses, and I'm betting your translation does as well, we think immediately of the forgiveness of sins and going to heaven. It's interesting, however, that this word is used uh, a number of times, quite a few times in John, and in a variety of ways. And when we translate it salvation, because of our evangelical understanding of salvation, we just kind of skate over the breadth of this word. It means to keep people safe from earthly danger. And it could be translated there as deliver or heal or cure. Let me give you a couple of examples. Mark six fifty six. 
In Mark 6.56, it says, Wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were saved. Now, that didn't mean that all who touched it had their sins forgiven and got immediately transported to heaven. And that's why my translation doesn't use the word saved here. It's the same Greek word, but my translation says, all who touched it were healed. Safety. Another example, and I'll just use two, Luke 8, 36. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. The word is saved. Translations could, but it doesn't mean that his sins were forgiven and he went to heaven. It means that he was no longer suffering the misery and the bondage that he had been suffering. Jesus delivered him into safety from all of that demonic oppression that he had been experiencing. He was cured, he was healed, he was delivered, he was saved. See, inside the pen, the sheep find safety. They they find safety from all the danger out there that could harm them in all kinds of temporal ways. But the word doesn't only mean to keep safe from earthly danger. It also does mean to keep safe from eternal danger. And John uses it this way a good number of times in the Gospels. In the Gospel of John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Here you see save is not the opposite of being sick. Save is the opposite of being condemned. Saved is hearing what we have sung this morning. No condemnation now I dread. Saved is used not only in delivering from demons, delivering from illness, but it's also used in delivering from that sentence of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or John 12, 47. In John 12, 47, it says, If anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Again, saved is the opposite of judged, as it was the opposite of condemned. And so when Jesus says, I am the gate of salvation, he says, I am the gate of safety. Safety from temporal dangers and safety from eternal dangers. One thing I tend to repeat throughout the year to my students is that I'm convinced that one of the most important theological truths is that your Redeemer was, first of all, your Creator. The Bible does not begin with John 3.16, but with Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and I believe it does so for a reason. 
We have to see first of all that God is our creator and then that he is our redeemer. Otherwise, our understanding of redemption can get very, very narrow. That redemption is simply me individually having my sins forgiven so that I can go to heaven and be with Jesus. Not realizing that, as Paul says, God has reconciled all things to himself. Things in heaven and things on earth by making peace through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. Christ is a cosmic redeemer. I was listening to Joy to the World this morning. I know it's not Christmas, but it's a great song anyhow. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. He's coming to undo everything that has been, sorry, turned upside down. That's a private joke. And you may not want to ask what it's about. <laughs> he comes to, to, to put everything right. You see, the reason why Jesus was healing sick people is because that's part of God's salvation. So let's not like completely separate his deliverance of temporal and his deliverance of eternal as if they're two categorically different things. The Apostle John had never read Immanuel Kant. And so he didn't understand this dichotomy that is so prevalent, the difference between the natural realm and the, and, and the spiritual realm. It's all one realm. It's, it's God's realm. He created it all. He's now redeeming it all. And so the gate of salvation gives you access to all of that wonderful safety Inside the pen, uh, safety for this life and safety for the life to come. But not only is it a gate of safety, it's also a gate of provision. That is the gate giving you access to all the good things outside the pen. You'd go into the pen at night to be safe, but during the day you would go outside the pen. Notice that says that the sheep are going in and they're going out. And as they go out, they find good pasture, provision. First Chronicles 440, which I'm sure all of us read at least once within the last five or six days, uh, says of God's people who are sheep. It says they found rich, good pasture, and the land was spacious, peaceful, and quiet. That's the gate. The gate giving you access to everything outside the pen, that good pasture, that provision, that Psalm 23 stuff. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not lack anything. Uh, he's going to lead me to green pastures where I have all the food that I need. He's going to lead me to the still waters, waters of resting places where I have drink and where I have rest. And through all of that, he's going to renew me as a person. And, and even if getting to that green pasture and still water even if that means going through the darkest of valleys. 
I will fear no evil. Because he's with me, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Because he's leading me, you see, he's leading me home. The gate opens you up, gives you access to that journey whereby the shepherd leads you. You follow him until you make it all the way home. And when you make it all the way home, what does he do? He spreads a table before you. He anoints your head with oil. Your cup runs over. Provision. Provision for this life. Provision for the life to come. So you see, when Jesus says, I am the gate for the benefit of the sheep, he begins to explain that by saying, I'm the gate of salvation. That means safety inside the pen. That means wonderful provision outside the pen. And then Jesus also kind of summarizes this whole thing by saying that means the gate of life. See, he says, I'm the gate of salvation, and you find safety in the pen. You go out through the gate to find provision outside the pen. Let me summarize that in verse 10 for you. When Jesus says the thief comes only to, to, to uh, steal, to kill, destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The gate is the gate of life. Life is a huge theme in John. This theme occurs 32 times, and I've taught you many times that Hebrew mothers taught their kids to repeat their vocabulary so that people will make sure that you'd make sure that people get the point. Life runs throughout the Gospel of John. Remember when we were looking at the first 18 verses, John 1, 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Run all the way through John and get to the very end in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life. From beginning to end, the theme of life runs through John's gospel like a golden thread. Remember, I am the light of life. I am the bread of of life. We shouldn't be surprised that in this third I am statement, Jesus is the gate of life. But what kind of life? Oh, I think I like the old NASB here. I think it uses the word abundant. Abundant life. My translation, the uh, NIV says, and have it to the full. Let me just read to you very briefly what two Greek dictionaries say. Uh, is the meaning of the Greek word that is translated here abundant or to the full or whatnot. Number one, being extraordinary in amount, abundant, profuse, going what is beyond necessary to have something in abundance. I like that going beyond what is necessary. That's Psalm 23. In the first half, the shepherd provides you with everything that is necessary, food and water and rest. 
But in the end, in the end of the psalm, he provides you with way more than what is just necessary. He spreads the table. He anoints your head. Your cup is neither half full nor half empty. It's running over. Goodness and mercy following you all the days of your life. That's the abundant life. What kind of life? Going beyond what is necessary. Another dictionary says more than sufficient to have a surplus. How many of us think that God is a God of paucity, littleness? Um, Because we've been raised with an economic system that teaches us that it's all based on scarcity. And so we have a view of God who's a God of scarcity. He only divvies out just enough. I've been thinking about maybe sometime preaching a series of sermons on the Lord's Prayer. And we would have to deal with what Jesus teaches us to pray when he says, give us this day our daily bread. But that's for another time and another place. Here I just want to remind you that God is a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, I don't think that that means that the cattle on hill 1001 aren't his. (laughs) Ten is a number of completion. Ten times ten is a hundred. So that's really good. A thousand is a hundred. What? Ten times a hundred is a thousand. That's what the psalm is saying. That God is a God of, of, of abundance. We only need to think about how many different kinds of cats and dogs and clothes and people and eye color. Why all of this abundance? Because it's a revelation of who God is. He's a God of abundance. And so the life that he gives is life that is abundant life. And of course, if it's truly abundant life, it has to be eternal. What does it gain a man if he profits the whole world? but loses his soul. I, I, I was, I, I've joked about this before. I, on the way down, I, I, you know, I often listen to music, and it just depends. But I was listening to two of my favorite uh, Reformed female vocalists. One was Whitney Houston, and the other one was Barbara Streisand. And, um, but at any rate, on the, on the track from The Preacher's Wife, Whitney Houston has a, a song on there. Or no, no, maybe it was Barbara Streisand. I forget. But at any rate, they have this image. No, it was, it was Barbara Streisand. They have this image of it, you, you live your life grasping for diamonds. And you find out in the end that they were just stones. What does it profit if you gain the whole world? And you have all of the abundance of this life. But in the end, you lose your soul. That's why John 3, 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has not abundant life, eternal life. Abundant life to the max. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Or John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent.
Jesus says, I am the gate. I'm for your benefit. What's that mean? That means safety in this life and in the life to come. That means provision in this life and in the life to come. That means abundant life in this life and in the life to come. Now, I'm not switching gears, but let me conclude just by talking to you a little bit about the North Star. You say, whoa, that was a left-hand turn. One of the benefits of Irma was that my wife and daughter and I were just sitting. and I forget whether it was in a lull or before Irma really arrived, but it seems to me the power was out because we could see the northern sky so clearly. And we were talking about the North Star. Uh, The North Star, Polaris, is famous because it holds nearly still all year long. Uh, so that the whole northern sky like spins around Polaris. And it's called Polaris because that's related to the poles. It's the pole star. If we were to take an imaginary piece of rebar, it's got to be really long, and we would put it through the earth from the south pole to the north pole and extend that rebar all the way out in space, If it went out far enough, it would eventually hit Polaris, the pole star, the north star. It's the one that just doesn't move. Now, if you face the north star, there you've got north. If you stretch out your hands, you've got east and west. And if you turn around, there you've got south. Doesn't matter what time of year it is, which is why the north star has been the guiding star in the northern hemisphere for sailors and for travelers of all kinds. Well, my North Star. I probably have mentioned some of this. I won't go into detail, but when when my family moved here from California back in 1999, I didn't realize the fact that I had really lost my way. I remember so clearly one Sunday morning driving to a small Baptist church on the south side of Orlando. And as I was driving to that church, this question came into my mind. Why are you doing this as opposed to, say, going to the beach with your family? And the scary thing was I didn't have an answer. I had lost my way. Well, before I got to that church, God just brought one simple word to mind. And that was the word encouragement. And I just had this sense that the reason I do what I do is just to encourage the sheep. And it wasn't long after that that God just kind of wrote on my heart, John 10.10. It should have been a psalm, but it wasn't. The thief comes to to steal, to kill, to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. That's my personal North Star. Why do I do what I do? I do it to encourage people to experience the life of Christ in all of its abundance. John 10.10. Now, what's that have to do with this sermon other than the fact that 
John 10.10 is the final verse. I simply want to conclude by saying this. Keep your eye on the gate. See, because when you get to the gate, the gate, you go through that gate. There you have eternal life in the future that now you can't even imagine. But you know, there are a lot of stars in your sky. There are a lot of stars that say, come this way, come that way. We have what you need. I'm just here to remind you this morning, simply put, keep your eye fixed on the gate as you travel all the way home and you will never lose your way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would seal this word on our hearts, that all the days of life on this earth that you give us, we might fix our eyes on the gate set before us, that we might hear the voice of the shepherd, and that we might make it all the way home. For your glory, for our eternal good, in Jesus' name. Amen.